Uh, welcome and good morning. My name is Christina Paxson, and I am Dean of the Woodrow Wilson School. And one of the true pleasures and privileges of service as Dean is the opportunity to introduce the annual Wilson, Woodrow Wilson Award winner at Alumni Day. This award recognizes undergraduate alumni who have taken up Princeton's call to service, Princeton in the nation service and in the service of all nations. This year, it is my great honor to introduce Ariel, to you Jim Leach of the great class of 1964. Jim was a politics major here. Yes. was a politics major at Princeton, not a Woodrow Wilson School major, but we will forgive him for that. And after leaving Princeton, he has embarked on a, a really spectacular career of public service, which I'll tell you a little bit about. His service to the nation has been both broad and varied. After leaving Princeton, he did graduate work at Johns Hopkins, then at the London School of Economics, and then, as General Petraeus noted, he joined the Foreign Service. In that role, he was delegate to the Geneva Disarmament Conference and the UN General Assembly, and he resigned that role in 1973 to protest President Nixon's firing of Archibald Cox, the independent counsel investigating the Watergate break-in. Well, after that, he, he worked several years in his family's business in Iowa, and then he ran for Congress, and he won, and he went on to serve for 15 terms. While in Congress, Jim worked on a wide range of issues, from financial market deregulation to HIV-AIDS funding, debt relief for poor countries, to strengthening the Peace Corps. He served as chair of the House's Banking and Financial Services Committee for six years, and also became very deeply involved in Asian and Pacific affairs. Last summer, Jim was appointed chairman of the National Endowment for the Humanities. I should say that in addition to his government service, Jim has been an active and very valuable member, um, alumnus at Princeton University. He was a member of our Board of Trustees, and at the Wood Woodrow Wilson School, we were very fortunate to have him as a professor uh, in between his time in Congress and his current position. While he was with us, he taught a number of courses. Uh, one was the intersection of Chinese and U.S. foreign policy and another was the role of Congress in shaping U.S. foreign policy. I, I should note that Jim's career is remarkable not just for what he has done, but how he has done it. Jim is known as a fiercely independent thinker. He is a true Iowan. His views do not always fit squarely within party lines, which I think has drawn fire from time to time. He has been described as being conservative on fiscal issues, moderate on social matters, and progressive in foreign policy. He is also known as being a man of very great integrity, who's willing to take principled positions, even if they're politically unpopular. And he has spoken very eloquently on the need to restore civility and a sense of shared responsibility in government service. One of the reasons why we greatly valued having him in the Woodrow Wilson School is that these characteristics of independence, integrity, and respect are precisely the kinds of principles that we try to instill in our students. Although we're proud of Jim's new role at the National Endowment for the Humanities, we, we really miss him at the Woodrow Wilson School. I just told him that before we started. And I know that as a visiting professor, our students value the depth of his knowledge and his insights, uh, particularly in foreign policy. Now, one of the privileges of Dean is that I get to go back and look at um, faculty members' course evaluations. <laughs> and I did this for Jim. And, and actually, I was, I was looking for comments that were, were funny, and I couldn't really find any. They were, <laughs> they were sincere and respectful and really wonderful. And I think they're best summed up by one student's written comment, which I'll read here in full. Quote, the overall quality of the course was among the best I have ever taken at Princeton University. My only suggestion would be the continuation of this course in the future to provide the students with an exceptional opportunity to learn and have the chance to discuss the topics under the able guidance of a wise man. So I am very glad that we will have the opportunity to benefit from this wisdom today, and Jim will be talking about civility in a fractured society. So ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to introduce Jim Leach.
Thank you, Chris. Uh, President Tillman, uh, General Petraeus, Chris. Uh, before beginning, uh, all of us that listened to the general, uh, we all had thoughts in our mind, and I want to mention several. Uh, uh, one is we're involved, uh, as every American citizen knows, in, in two very controversial wars. Uh, and it's very interesting, even though people can question political judgments or some motives of some people or some professionalism versus others, what if, and I want to respond to two concepts, what if the soldiers of the United States lost many, many battles? What if the professional military had not redesigned an approach to fit the times. We would have a very, very different circumstance. And what I'm suggesting is that we have just heard someone who has made America proud. Uh, the second thing uh, I want to comment about is uh, Shirley Tillman. I had the, the great privilege, Shirley, to serve as a member of the Board of Trustees, and I really struggled to find something to say no to. And the only duty of a member of the Board of Trustees at this university is to say yes. Uh, and and uh, uh, this is a matriarchy uh, of, of, of profound, profound dimensions. As a matter of fact, uh, reference has been made uh, by the general to our common class, uh, which as a general, has, as a wise man as I've defined it, has figured out is the finest class ever to go to Princeton. But uh, we, we had uh, a small disadvantage, uh, Madam President. Uh, Princeton was good at, at uh, two of the three R's that mattered in life. That is, we were really good at reading and writing. Uh, but we weren't so good in the last millennia uh, uh, at uh, realizing uh, how half of humanity thunk. Uh, and uh, when I was a senior, uh, Bob Goheen asked a group of us to write recommendations of things that could be improved, and I wrote a little note to my president suggesting that maybe we ought to admit women uh, so that we could start realizing. Uh, but it's taken a long time for me to learn very much at all, but thanks to Deepa a little bit. Uh, and also I had a, a, a personal view, having been a class officer in charge of what was called the class bicker system, that uh, the club system was wonderful and bicker was not. And that is a hair I, I take with me, that uh, I believe this university should be proud of its clubs but ought to go to a non-selective basis. But that is just a personal prejudice that does not have to be shared by anyone in the room. And when I suggested it with, as a trustee, uh, people took me aside and said, Jim, there are things in life you can do and things you can't do, uh, which is one of the great learning experiences we all have many times. Uh, and then I'm, I'm truly tempted to, to end with an observation that many of you might think is, is odd, but this university has had a, a long record of great instructors, great students, but I don't think any institution of any nature anywhere has had a, a greater series of top presidential leadership. And I see President Shapiro here. Uh, we're looking uh, at Shirley. Uh, and I will tell you, uh, my first uh, uh, hour as a student, I came to recognize that. And my president, uh, Bob Goheen, welcomed the freshman class at the old presidential residence. And I will never forget standing in a long line with my parents uh, as my first experience at Princeton and listening to the couple people as ahead of me uh, being uh, presented to the president. And President Goheen said to whoever it was, well, I'm so pleased to have you, John. I hope you continue with the piano. And then he got to me, and he looked at me, and he says, Jim, I'm so pleased to meet you. 
I hope you continue with your math and your wrestling. And I thought to myself, that was fairly astonishing. And my father looked at me afterwards and he said, "Uh, Jimmy, he said, you have just met the greatest man in the United States of America. (laughs) And I never came to doubt that. Uh, In any regard, my subject today is civility uh, in a fractured society. Uh, Few subjects uh, may seem duller uh, than concern for public manners. Uh, But in the context of American history, where change was wrought in the crucible of debate about the nature as well as the rights of man, a little is more important for the world's leading democracy than recommitting to an ethos of thoughtfulness in the public square. Uh, The times require uh, a new social compact rooted in mutual respect and citizen trust. Uh, The concept of civility implies politeness, but civil discourse is more than about uh, good etiquette. Uh, At its core, uh, civility requires respectful engagement, uh, willingness to consider other views, and place them in the context of history and life experiences. Uh, Comments several months back on the House floor involving advocates on both sides of the health care debate have gathered much attention. Uh, But vastly more rancorous, uh, socially divisive assertions are made made across the land. Uh, Public officials have been labeled fascist and communist, uh, sometimes at the same time. And more bizarrely, uh, a hint of history-blind radicalism Uh, the notions of secession, and the concept of nullification are creeping into the public dialogue. And one might ask, uh, what problem is there with a bit of hyperbole? Well, the logic, uh, to paraphrase uh, Marshall McLuhan's observation about the media, is the message. Uh, Certain frameworks of thought define rival ideas. Uh, Other frameworks describe enemies. If 400,000 American soldiers sacrificed their lives to defeat fascism, uh, if tens of thousands uh, gave their lives to hold communism at bay, and if we fought a civil war to preserve the Union, isn't it a citizen's obligation to apply perspective uh, to incendiary words that once summoned citizens to war? Uh, There is, after all, a difference between supporting a particular spending or health care position. Uh, But uh, asserting that someone who prefers another approach uh, or is a member of a different political party is an advocate of an ism of hate uh, that encompasses gulags and concentration camps uh, is, is out of bounds. Uh, Citizenship is hard. Uh, It takes commitment to listen, watch, read, and think in ways that puts oneself in the shoes of somebody else. Uh, Words matter. Uh, They reflect emotion as well as meaning. They clarify or cloud thought and energize action, sometimes bringing out the better angels of our nature, sometimes baser instincts. Uh, Stirring anger and playing on the irrational fears of citizens inflames hate. When coupled with character assassination, polarizing rhetoric can exacerbate uh, intolerance and perhaps impel violence. Uh, A decade ago, many of you may recall, uh, we had a uh, bomb go off in a courthouse in Oklahoma. This week, uh, we had a plane fly into an IRS building uh, in Texas. Uh, These are acts of anarchy by very frustrated Uh, individual citizens. Uh, To the degree we know much about them, uh, they appear, among other things, to be claiming constitutional concerns uh, about the role of the state. Uh, What is important is that there's no evidence of a uh, plot of any uh, conspiratorial dimension, but there appears to be a lot of evidence of of hate speech uh, and hate incitement in, in this country. Uh, and we have stopped using the, the theoretical uh, uh, concept that once was common in American public life, the idea of a melting pot. 
fortunately, there are a lot of other examples of words that, that uh, uh, have other uh, model dimensions. And so just as demagoguery can uh, jeopardize social cohesion and even public safety, uh, using language like Lincoln once did, uh, calling on people to change direction with malice towards none uh, can be uplifting and, and help bring society together, uh, as can uh, uh, observations of the President of the United States today, that we ought to think in a more collective, uh, bipartisan way. And it seems to me that the, the choice for leaders is, is whether to opt for a unifying kind of uh, statesmanship or opportunistic uh, partisanship. And likewise, the challenge for citizens is to determine whom to follow. Those who respect diversity but favor a united country or those who press uh, debilitating cultural wars or extreme ideological dimensions. Civilization is at, or civility is at the heart of civilization. But it's not exclusively a governance issue. Uh, whether we perceive ourselves as belonging to a single American community with all its variety, and whether we look at people in other neighborhoods and other parts of the world as members of our fam just as we do members of our family, uh, seeking security and opportunity for their kin, uh, is at the heart of, of questions of, of uh, how we look at each other. Uh, nevertheless, uh, in politics, we're going to have to be vigilant in many different ways. Uh, one of which is to guard against certain kinds of, 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 of wordage. Another is <clears throat> to be sure to protect uh, that debate uh, remains vigorous. In fact, advocacy of a very vigorous dimension uh, must be considered something that should always be uh, respected. Uh, that is, it's a social good. Uh, indeed, uh, it's a prerequisite for blocking tyranny and certainly uh, for avoiding dogmatism. And so rather than policing language, the goal should be to uplift the tenor and tone of debate and infuse it with historical and philosophical perspective. <clears throat> In the 19th century, we had a great American poet of the common man, uh, Walt Whitman, uh, who described America as an athletic democracy. What he meant was that 19th century politics was quite rugged, uh, with spirited debates about many things, from taxes uh, to almost incredibly, as we think back on it, the notion of slavery. Uh, things could not get, uh, things could also get quite violent. Um, a vice president of the United States uh, shot the greatest secretary of treasury in a duel. Here in this state, in something that was considered legalized manners, a duel. And that's a rather remarkable concept. Uh, Alexander Hamilton had called uh, Aaron Burr a despicable character. Uh, and in this duel, um, uh, Hamilton's judgment uh, was vindicated rather tragically. Uh, that is, uh, at the duel, Hamilton fired skyward. And then Burr carefully stood and gunned him down. And we all... Uh, uh, at least those of us that used to as kids read Hamiltonian biographies, they always kind of ended, was Hamilton being a gentleman or was he being uh, suicidal? And it ends up, uh, he was neither. Uh, he was duped. Uh, the, we found out a couple of decades ago that uh, an, an historical anecdote, just as we found out things about Thomas Jefferson, but of a different nature, uh, nothing like history detectives, but uh, the dueling pistols have been filed to a proverbial hair trigger, which was something that uh, Burr knew and Hamilton did not. Uh, and so uh, uh, treachery is nothing new in, in American politics, uh, nor is violence. Uh, what is new in the American scene are, are uh, transformative changes in communications technology, which has brought a, a, a different kind of... A, uh, meaning to how people listen and learn, uh, and debilitating changes in American politics, and to more than a small extent, the gravity of issues we as a country are facing. 
So in teaching here at Princeton, uh, I developed a, a series of what I called uh, two-minute courses in American public life. And I developed about 40 of these, and I've given them to a few people around town, so I hope I'm not repeating it. But I'm going to give seven or eight today uh, because they relate to why it is this country is rupturing in the way it is rupturing. And the first I call Political Science 101, and that is very simple. Uh, the, the country over the last generation is about a third Democratic, a third Republican, a third no party. If you cut a third and a half, that is, for those that have gone to West Point and taken engineering or taken <laughs> a little bit of math here at this school, we know that half of a third is a six. So a six of the American people control candidate selection of the Republican Party and a six control candidate selection of the Democratic. But in primary races for legislative seats, at most one in four participate, and often it's one in eight or one in 12, but let's say one in four. Well, one-fourth times one-sixth is one-twenty-fourth. So one-twenty-fourth controlled the selection in the Republican Party. One-twenty-fourth controlled the selection in the Democratic Party. And what that means is that on the Republican side, it's conservative quite, uh, to quite a degree today and of a different dimension. On the Republican Party, it's a new social conservative as contrasted with a Goldwater type of conservatism of a generation ago. On the Democratic side, it's kind of an older 20th century liberalism. Uh, political Science 102 is, is half totally understood by the public and half not. And the half that is understood is that in races for President of the United States, everybody knows that Republican candidates scoot to the right in the primary and then try to move back to the middle in the general, Democrats vice versa. But in legislative circumstances, the scoot doesn't occur. And that is what is not followed. And it's for a very logical, rational reason that it doesn't occur. That is, if you take the United States House of Representatives, about 380 or about 85% of the 435 House seats are safe between one of the parties or the other. And they're about half and half. About half these safe seats are Democratic, half Republican. In a safe seat, to win a primary, you have to be on the, on the right edge of the Republican Party, and you have to be on the left edge of the Democratic Party. And once you come to Washington, you have no reason to compromise, because if you do, you will be challenged in the only place that the challenge matters, which is in the primary, from the edges. And so there is no incentive for someone elected as a Republican to ever move to the center or elected as a Democrat to move to the center because of the challenge to your job style. Uh, and the end result is a very natural polarization uh, in legislative bodies. Uh, this is complicated further because we have a new rhetoric of American politics on trigger issues. And many trigger issues are considered moral issues. Well, the obvious fact is that if you have a moral issue and you're on one side of a moral issue, the person on the other side is immoral. And that's very different than being someone conservative and someone liberal. Moral versus immoral does not raise grounds of, of people thinking they're able to uh, respect each other. And, and let me be very clear on this. It's a problem in both parties. Uh, Democratic members often think that voting for almost any increase in funding for a social program is a moral imperative. Uh, Republicans often think that voting for anything that fits their moral code should also apply to society as a whole. And those two uh, circumstances become almost uncompromisable. Uh, psychology 102 uh, uh, is a situation that, that uh, in, Amer in America, not unlike any place in the world, there is a real sense of people that they want governing decisions closer to home where people can control them. Uh, and so you have this circumstance that everybody is following very carefully that in this world of globalism, everybody is affected by global circumstance. Uh, 
But what everyone is missing that is that globalism is also being competed against by localism. And it's this tension. Uh, the, the whole notion, as Tip O'Neill used to say, that all politics is local, uh, with the notion that all local politics is affected by global events uh, that have to be ma- factored into how it is that we as a society make decisions. Uh, journalism 101 is that in the 19th century, uh, towns and cities often had two or more newspapers, and they usually uh, were quite partisan, identifying with one or the other great political parties. Uh, then in the 20th century, particularly the, the second and third uh, quartiles of the 20th century, we had the development of radio uh, and then television, and we had a consolidation of newspapers. And so suddenly, as the media had larger and larger audiences, it moved to trying to figure out ways to keep everyone attuned, and that meant trying to have greater balance and a little greater depth. Uh, and then with the development of, of uh, uh, more television uh, the, uh, and the blogging kind of media, uh, suddenly we had so many competitions for the dispersal of news that, A, the media broke down, as we all are watching, by an inability to, to finance itself in many different instances. And secondly, a, a clear decision uh, among some, partly perhaps based on, on philosophical reasons, partly perhaps on commercial, that some of the media would go in a direction of looking at markets just like one uh, looks at designing clothes. That is, one uh, tries to adapt to the marketplace rather than being concerned with the uh, fundamental fairness or balance in news reporting. And so you have these dual circumstances that, that uh, uh, lack of, of advertising dollars has, has made some of the media weaker, coupled with the whole notion that uh, other types of the media have carved out market share based upon only presenting one philosophical perspective. And you have a circumstance where the country is choosing what to look at, which reinforces one kind of perspective versus another and leads to an obvious circumstance that if you, if you have a particular perspective, it gets reinforced in very deep ways uh, that makes compromise, again, uh, very difficult in, in American political life. Uh, I sometimes like to, to suggest that uh, in the humanities, people forget what a large role uh, the culture of sport plays. And particularly all of us of a given age, and we never knew this man, but we all know of him. There's a sports writer named Grantland Rice who once commented that what matters not was whether one won or lost, but how one played the game. And uh, we uh, forget that the same applies or should apply to politics. That is, that the temper and integrity of the political debate in many ways is more important than the outcome of any issue. Uh, And one of the great questions is, if you look at significant competition, uh, whether you're talking a a BCS bowl game, whether you're talking uh, a Princeton-Yale football game, uh, competition is really, really thick. But there is no such thing as a good coach or a good team that doesn't respect the opposition. And it's one of the first things you do. And you study the opposition. And in politics, it, it, one would think that one would, would follow the same line. And frankly, in my view, uh, uh, in terms of competitiveness, politics has to catch up with sport. Uh, at this university, uh, one of the... Uh, Wonderful things is we had to take courses that we had no background in as students. And I remember uh, kind of fumbling along and, and, and taking a course in comparative literature. And of all the courses I've ever taken, I'm confident that's the one that made the greatest difference in, in, in my way of looking at the world. Um, and the great uh, set of books that was very fashionable in, in the early 60s and is still alive and well today but not in fashion was... Uh, something called the Alexandria Quartet by Lawrence Durrell. Uh, and I don't want to go into the Alexandria Quartet except to make this observation. Durrell wrote four books all about 
the same set of events of very minor proportions in the, the town of Alexandria, Egypt, which was one of the uh, seminal towns, obviously, in, in, in world history. Uh, but they were set uh, in the interwar years, that is, between World War I and World War II. And one wonders, and each of these four books about the same set of events were written from a, a first-person perspective from one of the participants. And one w wonders, why do you read about the same thing four times over? And it ends up there were four totally different stories. And the moral was that to get a sense for reality, uh, one uh, had to look at things from more than one set of eyes. Uh, and this applies in life situations, it applies in a courtroom, it applies in international relations. And so, for example, how America looks at a particular foreign policy might look incredibly reasonable, but it might look very different from a European perspective, a Middle Eastern, an African, an Asian. And so one of the, the great challenges we have is, is to learn the lessons, as far as I'm concerned, of, of Lawrence Durrell. Um, my favorite course uh, uh, that, again, uh, derives from uh, a Princeton experience taking a, a course called Physics. And uh, I call this course Physics 101. And everybody knows there was a chap named Isaac Newton, and Newton had these three laws of motion, uh, the third of which was for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction, meaning action equals reaction. And uh, anyway, one day, uh, sitting on the floor of the House of Representatives General, I discovered the fourth Newtonian law. And uh, this was discovered as, as a pun. Uh, that is, uh, the Speaker of the House was a chap named Newt. Uh, and uh, so this is a Newtonian law, and I was watching a, a speech he was delivering and watching my friends on the Democratic side react. And it dawned on me that in social physics, or maybe it's chemistry, uh, reaction uh, can be greater than action. Uh, you call someone a bum, he's likely to respond uh, a little higher charged. Uh, uh, in international relations, there are some dangers in describing a country as evil or a, or a country as backwards. And, and we have to recognize that there can be unintended consequences, even of comments that might have a degree of accuracy to them. Uh, Humanities 101 is that in the most uh, uh, profound political observation of the 20th century, uh, Einstein suggested that splitting the atom had changed everything except our way of thinking. Uh, and human nature may be uh, the only virtual constant in, in, in history, uh, but 9-11 has taught, in my view, uh, that not only is there a grave danger of the bomb, uh, but there's also grave danger in the implosive uh, uh, anarchy, and that very small acts of small people can cause uh, horrendous consequences in very sophisticated countries. And that is the great challenge uh, in international relations today. Uh, and what is necessary is uh, uh, our great global efforts to, to change people's way of thinking. Uh, and that obviously is, is, is difficult because we have to change our own. And we're in a society that is also structured with uh, psychological problems, psychiatric problems of a strong, high number of people, which may or may not be a factor in the in the two bombings or the the recent plane event in Texas and the one in Oklahoma. I just don't know, uh, but it's not an inconceivable factor. Uh, a course I call Humanities 102 is that in uh, Western civilization's most prophetic poem, which might be uh, the Second Coming, uh, Yeats suggests that the center cannot hold. Uh, when the best lack all conviction and the worst are full of passionate intensity. Um, if you look at today's politics, uh, citizens are, are uh, displaying enormous disrespect for their fellow, fellow citizens. And if you look at today's politics, uh, leaders are not rising uh, to the occasion. Uh, and that, it, that we... We know that the whole public doesn't like negative approaches. We also know from much sophisticated data in the political realm that negative approaches are what win elections. 
And so we have this whole circumstance that the public has to think about. And my only advice to friends is not to vote Republican or Democrat, but uh, to vote for the candidates that are the least negative. Um, in any regard, if you think of political utterances, uh, we had a, a very extraordinary thing happen a few weeks ago. Uh, an utterance that wasn't even heard has come to be considered a matter of public manners. Uh, and by that I mean, uh, for the first time I've ever known, a comment that was mouthed but not voiced uh, became a matter of, of, of interest in the State of the Union address. And according to lip readers, the, a Supreme Court justice suggested that the, what the President of the United States said was not true uh, in response to a, a the president's critique of a court decision. Uh, well, I'm going to take a minute to, to describe uh, not so much the incident, uh, but the reason for the incident. And, and uh, there are contrasting takes on it. One is that uh, uh, the president uh, inaccurately and inappropriately uh, criticized the court, and the other is that the a Supreme Court justice uh, injudiciously ruled and uh, perhaps overreacted to presidential criticism. And so how one looks at the, at the court ruling is of some consequence, uh, and for another reason. And I'm gonna talk a little longer than you might suspect on this because I think it's of, of seminal consequence. Uh, what the court did in this particular re uh, ruling, which is called uh, Citizens United versus uh, the Federal Election Commission, was take a very problematic uh, freedom of speech issue uh, and rule uh, broadly when it had the option of ruling narrowly. Uh, and it asserted uh, basically in defiance of statute uh, and precedent uh, that corporations have constitutional rights uh, embedded in the First Amendment to infuse money into campaigns. Uh, and this is starkly consequential. Uh, and if one assumes that uh, uh, constitutional rights apply to uh, corporations in the same way as they do to individuals uh, and believes the right to infuse money uh, inheres in the right of free speech, uh, the majority opinion is quite logical. Uh, but I personally come down on, on the side I call the minority four. Uh, but for reasons that go way beyond uh, those set forth in the dissenting opinion. And uh, the issue uh, uh, that sparked um, the, the incident during the State of the Union debate is basically how to balance uh, an imputed right of corporations to speak against the capacity of non-moneyed citizens to be heard. And to me, uh, citizen angst today is more than slightly related to the fact that many voters think that in the political process uh, they're not being listened to uh, and that vested interest holds an improper sway uh, in political decision making. Uh, and there's a growing sense that uh, elected officials have lost sight of the public interest, what the British utilitarians in the 19th century used to describe as the greatest good for the greatest number. Uh, many are, are familiar with a comment that is attributed to Bismarck that the public shouldn't watch too closely at either laws or sausages being made. Uh, but to the degree that there's a commonality between law and sausages, it is that the public does want these ingredients to come together in as clean a way as possible. And arguably in America, uh, process is our most important product. Uh, our founders uh, recognize human frailty, and they imbued in our system not only checks and balances uh, for kind of political organization reasons, but on the assumption that, that, that people were frail. Um, and uh, they wanted the system itself to be uh, fair and honest and equalitarian. Uh, but what has happened is, and, and actually it was reflected this week uh, in Senator uh, Bayh's comments on leaving, announcing he was leaving the Senate, um, when he said a lot of good people come into politics, uh, but the system 
uh, is dysfunctional, but it's more than dysfunctional. Uh, it's not totally dysfunctional, but uh, the body he represents is. Uh, <laughs> uh, there, there's, an old rule, there's an old rule in the House of Representatives that Republicans don't like Democrats and vice versa, but the real enemy is the Senate. Uh, <laughs> But there are, are problems with Senate rules that aren't of, of trivial dimension. Uh, but what, what's interesting to think about is that from a historical uh, perspective, uh, our country has evolved, the law has evolved, our values that are ensconced in the, in the Constitution have evolved, and the court has largely led uh, uh, in efforts to... to uh, uh, keep uh, respect for the rule of law at the highest possible pinnacle. But just like our politics has made misjudgments, the court has too. Um, And we um, have today, obviously, uh, great problems that, uh, whether they be related to challenges of war or healthcare or whatever. Uh, But in some ways, the greatest problem in our society right now internally is that there is a breakdown of confidence in government itself. And this is something that, that uh, uh, I think the court ruling has magnified. Uh, and the notion that, that uh, 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 corporate spending is free speech totally misunderstands what happens in real politics. Corporate spending today is for one obvious reason. It's to uh, attempt to be heard in the political process in powerful ways. And so what you're really talking about is influence peddling more than you're talking about speech. And corporate muggings are not uh, rare in American politics. In fact, they're increasingly frequent. Uh, And if what are called political action committees, which are now thoroughly authorized, I happen not to think they should be, but for whatever reason they are authorized, uh, what you have is a, a huge uh, funding aspect that drowns out other people's speech. Um, and if you take the electoral pro- pro- process, it's partly about who wins and loses. Uh, but it's also about what happens in between. And uh, to paraphrase uh, uh, von Clausewitz, uh, lawmaking is a continuation of politics in another form. Uh, electoral politics absolutely never stops. Uh, it's just interrupted on election days. Uh, and it, in our current politics, you have some citizens that are, uh, can speak quietly. Uh, you have other citizens that have a megaphone. Uh, and now with this court ruling, you have an even greater emphasis on uh, particularly those that are elected, uh, uh, some having particular access to the headphones of those individuals. Um, but our democracy is, is one that, that, that began uh, very fundamentally with the notion of a people and a government come, springs from the people. Um, and no corporation uh, under any concept of our founders was uh, endowed with inalienable rights. Uh, and uh, if you go back uh, to conceptualizations, uh, in 1857, there's a case called the Dred Scott case in which the Supreme Court of the United States ruled in effect that uh, a person was property, which is a fairly extraordinary thought. This court, uh, in a much less uh, uh, profound decision than Dred Scott, uh, but nevertheless very symbolic one, has suggested that a, a, a corporation is a person. Uh, and that concept of personhood is, is something we've never had in American public life. Uh, and what it means is that uh, if you hold a corporation as a person, our assumptions have always been all people are equal, all individuals are equal, but is an individual equal to a corporation? And then if you have one citizen that has no corporate uh, uh, nexus, versus another citizen that not only has one, might have hundreds. One person can have one voice, another person can have hundreds, and all of a sudden uh, you have a 
uh, inequality uh, infused in, in ways that, that uh, have never been thought of before. Uh, and in my view, uh, this great arc of, of uh, progress that has generally been progressive in American history has just moved uh, backwards in, in uh, extraordinary dimensions. Well, I'm just going to conclude uh, with uh, this observation, uh, that many of us that have lived through politics would like to see change. There are many changes that are possible and many changes that affect uh, civil speech. Uh, my own sense is the most uncivil speech of all uh, is paid speech. And the reason it's uncivil is that it bends judgment, and it bends it in very profound ways. A, a, a person in public life is like a judge on many issues. That is, one person has this position, another person has this position. But if the person with this position has just given the legislative judge a lot of money, which one is he going to choose? And he's going to choose this position in very rational argument. Just like in a court setting, everybody has a case, but you have to determine which case is stronger. Uh, and for that reason, I have held that, that what we ought to have is a political system based on small contributions of individuals uh, matched by public funds up to a given point. Now the interesting phenomenon of that particular perspective, or a slightly more radical one, which is all public financing, is that the Supreme Court has just said, whether you agree with that perspective or not, I don't ask everybody here to agree with it, but whether you agree with it or not, the Supreme Court of the United States has just said that is an unconstitutional thought. And that, to me, is worthy of very serious review. I mean, if I were to pull people in this room, you might get a lot of people on one side of the, the suggestion I made, a lot of people on the other. But I want to ask you, how many people think that thought is unconstitutional? But now it is because the Supreme Court has said that the First Amendment of the United States, the right of free of speech, applies to a entity uh, that isn't uh, uh, a living soul that's artificial. And so uh, I'll just conclude with the notion that the public interest uh, can hardly be advanced if the public voice is silenced in public decision-making. Thank you. I'd be happy to, to take a few questions. Yes, sir. Uh, the question is uh, that uh, it's been suggested, I said, gerrymandering is behind the, the uh, part of the problem in American politics. Do I have any suggestions on gerrymandering? Well, first, let me, let me say, uh, I didn't reference gerrymandering, but I'm concerned about gerrymandering. Um, and what gerrymandering is is a design of a political district in an odd kind of way. Um, uh, what I suggested was about half the seats are safe. Excuse me, about, excuse me, about 85% of the seats are safe. Part of that is a result of gerrymandering, but part of it's natural. Uh, you take, uh, let's say, the city of Chicago, it's hard to carve out a Republican district uh, without gerrymandering. I mean, you just, it's just virtually impossible. And so some of it's a result of gerrymandering, some of it is not. Now, the state of Illinois that has one of our uh, most interesting political systems... Uh, uh, in the last uh, redistricting, and I, to me, this is just a wonderful story. Uh, they had 20 seats. They went down to 19. 
the head of the Republican Party in the House got together with the head of the Democratic Party in the House, and together they wrote the plan for the state legislature to accept. And very interestingly, um, they went from 20 to 19, and the decision was to take uh, 18 of the new 19, uh, and Democrats very graciously gave up Republican precincts to neighboring Republicans, and Republicans very graciously gave up Democratic precincts to neighboring Democrats. And so, uh, and then there was one seat that they couldn't figure out, and so it became a close to 50-50, although not quite. Uh, and uh, what it was was a nonpartisan, uh, in the sense that both parties fully agreed with, uh, ensconcement of incumbency. Uh, now, in other states, like California, uh, the goal of, of, of gerrymandering, uh, and you saw it even more clearly in Texas, but California was consistent. The idea is that the majority party, which in this case was the Democratic Party, uh, tried to make re uh, Republican seats as fully Republican as conceivable, which meant that all of the close districts would then become Democratic. And so... California is gerrymandered on the Democratic side. In the 90s, Texas, the same way, was gerrymandered on the, on the Democratic side. And then as Republicans gained control of the legislature, the gerrymandering went in reverse. And so that's when you had this great issues of Tom DeLay, et cetera, and all of these things that went on in, in that, that issue. Uh, now, what do you do about it? Well, under uh, our constitutional arrangements and... Intriguingly, as, as a society, we never really thought them through as much as we did, uh, had to, in the 2000 election. Uh, and as you recall, we had uh, uh, nine people determine the outcome. Uh, but the intriguing aspect of all of the decision-making that went on, it became uh, basically significant that, it w it, that we realized that the states controlled the election process under the Constitution and every state has a slightly different technique. Uh, and so it is under our Constitution, it, it's something up to the states to do. Uh, you cannot pass a national law that says how the states run their elections. Uh, now, uh, you can advocate approaches. Now, it happens my state has a model approach. Uh, we have a, a nonpartisan commission that draws lines that under statute uh, cannot look at where incumbents live. Uh, and uh, I think that's a good approach. And then it has a, a, a kind of a backup that if uh, a legislature, the, and the legislature has to vote up or down on the state, on the nonpartisan uh, commission recommendations. It can vote it down, and then they have to vote up or down on another one. If they vote up or down twice, it automatically goes to the uh, uh, state Supreme Court to determine. And so that puts a lot of pressure on, on the legislature to come up with something and approve the nonpartisan commission. I think that's one possible tact, but I have to stress it, 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 it's, it's got to be done at the state level, not at the national. Uh, and there's always intransigence about that. And the only time you get a little more nonpartisanship is when you have division at the state level. Let's say the a governor's Republican, a legislature's Democratic, or you have split legislatures, and then you get a little more. Now, there are interesting aspects that, that come about. Uh, in general, most of American politics is designed to be pro-incumbent. Uh, this is one thing, time, that it's 90% that, but 10% can be disruptive, and that is state legislatures have in common that state legislators like to run for Congress. And so sometimes they design seats for themselves rather than the sitting incumbent. But there's always a little self-interest there. Uh, but we do have a, a problem with, with uh, uh, incumbency advantages. And it takes really uh, stark years to have trends change. Now, we're, we're seeing right now, uh, if one were to go back a year and a half, it looked like a tremendous one-party upsurge for perhaps a long period of time, and we're seeing how moods shift. If an election was today, it, would, it would, might be a little bit leaning uh, 
in another direction. Uh, by this fall, it could be totally different again. I mean, we, you know, the American mood is a, is a very uh, quick, changing circumstance. And so we, anyone that would predict this fall with confidence is, is, is foolish, although obviously the American public is seeing a little bit of a trend that may be uh, catching hold. Yes, sir. Uh, Jim, what many people may not know is that you were a two-time Iowa State wrestling champion, which is no small feat. Um, and I'm just wondering uh, if during your course in Congress, uh, did you ever, although I know you're a thorough gentleman completely, um, did you ever uh, give thought to uh, throwing someone into a headlock on the House of the Representatives floor and putting them on the mat? Well, uh Human, human nature uh, has a uh, constant. Didn't I mention that? And uh, one is not always charitable in all one's thoughts. But when, when that's, that's one reason you have manners, to, to contain those uh, gorilla thoughts. But uh, uh, actually, we've had a, a few wrestlers in the Congress. Uh, Don Rumsfeld was quite a fine wrestler. Uh, Denny Hastert was a credible wrestler. And then... Very unusually, most wrestlers, oddly, are, are Republican. And um, uh, as you know, it's a great intellectual sport. And, uh, but we had uh, uh, one quite unusual wrestler in the Senate named Paul from Minnesota. What was his last name? Paul Wellstone. And what's unique about it is, forgetting being a little bit Republican, most wrestlers kind of speak... Uh, little and gruffly and Paul was an absolutely uh, outgoing you know uh, irrepressible type and uh, that's very unusual in wrestling uh, but uh, I've of all the wrestlers that have served in the Congress the one that loved wrestling the most it might have been Paul Wellstone who coached it for many years Denny Hastert was also a high school wrestling coach when Yes, sir. Yes. Thank you. Uh, my name is Bruce McBarnett, class of 80. And I was uh, interested in your comments concerning the civility uh, that you see in uh, the Congress. Uh, I used to practice law for the United States Senate, and I was curious what differences you see on the issue of civility in the Senate as opposed to the House. Well, uh, the Senate has a long tradition of, of uh, above-ground civility. Uh, and, uh, and I will tell you, uh, the House was always designed to be more rambunctious. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the great deserved canings that I know of in American history was a House member that went over to the Senate and, and, and knocked a senator in his head. And the senator didn't survive. Uh, this is one of these things the House celebrates, but uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, actually, if, if if you walk in, the geography is different. It's very intriguing. Uh, the House has benches. Uh, the Senate has seats. Uh, neither has a lot of attendance on the floor uh, many times during debate, but the Senate has easily the least. Um, and the rules of the Senate uh, lead to some types of, of, of comedy based upon uh, uh, perceived privileges that, uh, I mean, that any senator can hold up any bill at any time, can hold up any appointment anywhere at any time for capricious reasons or real reasons. Uh, it, the Senate has rules that disadvantage the House in many ways. In fact, the one aspect of Senate rules that are often or never noted is that they terrifically disadvantage the House of Representatives relative to the Senate. Uh, now, the Senate has become, in its makeup, more like the House in recent years in terms of who gets elected to the Senate. Uh, but uh, I would, I, and I think one of your queries is, is the Senate uh, still... Uh, on the surface, much more civil than the House, the answer is yes. But there's one underlying thing that, that differentiates, that takes it away below the surface. Uh, 
And that relates to the water faucets in the Senate. <laughs> and see, people who sup from those water faucets all think they can run for president of the United States. <laughs> and, and what that means is that senators might have rival ideas or whatever, and rival ideas are easy to deal with on a civility basis. Rival ambition is not. Uh, and so the Senate has a little bit of that as an undercurrent that the House has less of. And that doesn't mean that there are a House member or two uh, that don't think about this particular circumstance, I'm, a circumstance I'm sure no general has ever thought about. Uh, uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, I'm, and, and so you, uh, you do have models out there. Uh, and I, I will only, uh, because I think this is last observation, I will tell you about backgrounds in public life. I think it's very interesting that the Secretary of State in my lifetime that has done by all odds the best in integrating the uh, officers of the department up and down the chain of command by quantum measure more than any Secretary of State was a military officer. And this is Colin Powell, because it was his instinctive manner. Uh, and uh, 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 thank goodness we don't have civility problems in the Joint Chiefs of Staff, although I'm confident that there are different ideas and different personalities there are in every single kind of, of, of human organization. Uh, but uh, we, we, when you think of an American president, uh, and here I'm going to end because I don't want to sound like I'm referring to anyone that anyone knows, but uh, who was the greatest speaker in American public life and who was the greatest unifier of any president other than conceivably Washington, who we don't know about his speaking ability. And I would argue it was Dwight David Eisenhower. And people say, Jim, you're crazy. He wasn't a great public speaker. And I tell you, I'm not. The goal of public speaking is not to be eloquent. It's to be believed. And I know of no president in American history that was more believed than Dwight David Eisenhower. Uh, and... Uh, uh, I, I only raise this because when you talk about institutions of government, you got the House versus the Senate, you have the Congress versus the executive branch, and you have many elements of the executive branch, um, and uh, you also end up with implicit rivalries uh, between and within people within the executive branch. And, uh, I, and I'm going to end because the National Endowment for the Humanities is the most independent federal agency. But as an observer, I have never seen a president better liked by people who work with him than this particular president. And I've never seen a president who, from a civility point of view, uh, was A, more natural, and B, more disciplined. I mean, I can't think of anyone in life that should be angrier and reflects it less. Uh, and so uh, there are lots of things we have as a country to try to bring back together. Uh, but uh, one is that we have a vested interest in this administration working, in General Petraeus's strategies working, whether they're precisely right or wrong. I mean, I mean everybody makes mistakes. But we as a country have to recognize we're a whole. And we, as a country, have to recognize that this pettiness in the House and the Senate is precisely that. It's pettiness. Thank you.
thank you, Jim, for a really wonderful presentation. And I want to thank everybody for being here today. I have a few final housekeeping remarks. Uh, we have been asked to, to ask people to stay um, where you are just for a, a second so that the award winners can get out and get to um, sh uh, the shuttle buses that will take them down to the luncheon. Uh, when you leave, there are shuttles out in front of Richardson for those who wish to ride to Jaguar Jim, and I look forward to seeing you there. Thank you.